Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again off another long week of professional wrestling. And we are here to break down everything that happened in the world of WWE, of course, SmackDown and Raw, but everything in the news cycle in between. We have a loaded show for you today, as we always seem to on Tuesdays, really every episode of the Getting Over Professional Wrestling Podcast. So I would be remiss if I did not begin this show, as I always do, with a quick reminder that this podcast is all about And if you're a new listener, you may be saying, Silver King, what the hell does that mean? That means we are all about the five-star rating and review. And more important than that, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. We want you to be marks for the Getting Over Wrestling podcast by visiting Apple Podcasts, leaving those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify. You can also leave a five-star rating. But if you leave a five-star written review and let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, and why they should subscribe to the feed. We will read it live right here on the air. And I will tell you folks, we got not one, not two, but three new reviews this week on Apple Podcasts. But there's a little bit of a problem with two of them. I'll get to that in a minute. First, let me shout out Dustin Pete 86, only wrestling podcast I need, five stars. The Silver King and Chris do such a great job reviewing all things AEW and WWE. With so much wrestling on TV weekly, it's hard to watch everything every week. Even when I can't fit everything in, I feel like because of them, I never miss anything. They catch me up in a very in-depth and entertaining way. The Silver King is also very engaging with fans on the Twitter machine. And you can tell he really cares about our feedback and giving us a show that we can enjoy, even if he doesn't agree with me that he sounds like Kevin Owens. I don't know why you think I sound like a French Canadian. I just don't. I'll go back to this. Uh, I wish I could give the show five slabs of beef, but I guess the stars will have to do. So thank you so much for that review, Dustin. As always, anyone who drops that five stars, we not only read the review, we also acknowledge you right here on the podcast. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. Now, as I teased, we got three reviews and two other great write-ups on Apple Podcasts. The problem, one of them who literally wrote in the review headline that he was giving us five stars only clicked two stars. That hurts us. And obviously I can't read your review, even though it was glowing and well-written. So BHB Mike, uh, thank you for listening to the show. If you want to correct that rating and resubmit the review, we would love to read it. But right now we can't do it. And I can only give you partial credit. You don't get the acknowledgement because it was clearly a mistake because what you wrote was great but you hit the wrong button. We also got a third very nice review, which I appreciate, but it was listed at four stars. Again, we're all about the five. So I'm struggling here, folks. My hands are tied. I want to read your stuff, but I can't do it. Now, beyond all of that, of course, I do hope you follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that great stuff. Don't forget at Getting Overcast. And I do have one more reminder, of course, that on this podcast, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well. Please join us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over 
For only five bucks a month, you can become an official getting overhead. You get bonus audio, you get news posts, you get to interact with us, and that $5 a month supports the show. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. I would greatly appreciate it. Now, as I already said, we have a ton to discuss on today's show. Vintage Chris Vanini will be joining us for the main event. Due to a scheduling issue, though, he will not be here for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Before we get to him, off the top, I did want to knock out a few items that don't necessarily fit in our normal segments. Let's start with the 10 NXT superstars and two WWE NIL signees who made cameos on SmackDown this Friday, given it was from Orlando. We got the Cavender twins, the Miami women's basketball players, the NIL signees from the crowd. They flew up from Miami. They are not signed as WWE superstars or performance center trainees right now, but they do continue to make multiple TV appearances for the company. I keep hearing that they're not dedicated to it and they're not ultimately going to do it, but they are showing up a lot. Maybe that's just fulfilling terms of the contract. We will see. From the crowd, we saw Wesley, Dragon Lee, and women's champion Tiffany Stratton. She actually fought Kiana James in a dark match that got pretty positive reviews. Backstage during SmackDown, Jay Uso gave a nod to Tony D'Angelo and Stax. Then he dapped up the Creed brothers. And then Bobby Lashley later dapped up NXT champion Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams backstage. They were also shown in the crowd earlier, not Lashley, but the other guys. That's obviously notable given Lashley met with the Street Profits last week, but I don't have any reason to believe Trick Mellow Gang, the meetup with them, is anything but spotlighting them on TV. I don't think they're all going to form a five-person faction or anything like that. I have no belief that's happening. It's just they probably wanted to give them a nice moment with a baby face on TV. That's my assumption. Now, that brings us to the next topic, which is that there were multiple changes made to SmackDown on Friday, not due to Vince McMahon or anything, but rather COVID-19 and illness that hit at least a portion of the roster. Most notable in terms of being absent from the show was Bianca Belair. Now, I don't know if she has COVID-19 or if she was sick or just something else happened. We're not making any assumptions. I'm just telling you what I noticed from SmackDown on Friday. So Bianca Belair was not on the show. And it seemed like they changed what was reportedly a planned in-ring segment to build the women's title match and announce the triple threat. Instead, they just announced the triple threat on Twitter and they did what they ultimately did on SmackDown. We'll talk about it later with Asuka and Charlotte Flair. That might also explain why the Profits were not on the show. It stands to reason they would want to follow up the Lashley Profits meeting from last week with the segment this week, except Montez Ford, and perhaps Angelo Dawkins may have been unavailable for perhaps the same reason as Bianca. Now, SmackDown on Friday, I thought it was a really strong show, despite being on FS1. We did tweet this. It got the best rating for any SmackDown on FS1, won by about 200,000 viewers and a decent demo as well. They put a good foot forward, no doubt about it. The Orlando crowd was at the top of their game, but still... SmackDown, for me, paled in comparison to Monday Night Raw, and really in every way except the crowd. Tampa was loud on Monday. Do not get me wrong about that. They were also really obnoxious with what chance during half the promos, and we want tables chance randomly during matches that were not no DQ matches. They just were chanting for tables. It was so weird. 
Now, back to Raw itself as a show. It's just hitting for me. It was fantastic. No episode of wrestling is going to be flawless. But Monday night, what we got is pretty damn close as far as I was concerned. It's actually a strange feeling given how long we have been podcasting about wrestling, how long some of you have been listening to me podcast about wrestling over six years now, three on this show alone, and how long I've been watching wrestling as a product for all that time to like something as much as I am liking what we're currently getting from Raw. It just feels strange. They have been knocking it out of the park over the last two months. The roster is exceedingly strong. We talked about this coming out of the WWE draft. It was stronger than the SmackDown roster by a good margin, especially the women's division, although we're not necessarily seeing all the fruits of that. Uh, The creative is consistent and entertaining. And even the flaws that we find, and yes, there are still plenty of them because nothing is perfect. They aren't major issues. You also have NXT, which has been super consistent. SmackDown, it's elevated by the bloodline. It's up and down though. AEW Collision has rocked all but one week since debuting, as far as I'm concerned. I haven't yet seen Saturday's show. Dynamite, it's been up and down. Rampage is absolutely worthless, as you all know. But the one show out of these six that I am most excited for every week without fail, it's been Raw. And given it has a three-hour runtime, that just should not be the case. Yet it is. And hour three the last two weeks has been exceptionally good. Now, look, when football season rolls around, we'll have to see how I feel trying to watch Raw simultaneously with Monday Night Football. And we all know that historically, at least, not that WWE completely mails it in, but they take their foot off the gas a little bit during NFL season. Right now, it's operating hot. And it's going to be very curious to see what happens once football rolls around in September. But I can tell you, I know how NBC feels. And you do, too, if you watched any of the Open Championship in golf this past week. They were promoting the hell out of Raw. And I watch a lot of sports, so I'm on Fox, NBC, and Turner all the time. TBS and TNT advertised AEW ad nauseum. They do it all the time, especially during sports. SmackDown and Raw, they get a few mentions on you know Fox and NBC during NFL coverage, but the amount of promotion for Raw on USA Network and NBC during the open was insane. Now, if you are an official getting overhead and you're with us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, you may have an understanding of why that's the case, specifically for Raw and not WWE in general, given the Peacock deal. But in general, it was great to see NBC Universal get behind the Raw product stronger than they really have in a long time, especially during a major sporting event, one of the biggest that NBC airs the entire year. So folks, like I said, I did want to break down as much of that WWE news kind of surrounding the company, my thoughts on what's happening with SmackDown and Raw before we get into the show itself. We do have the main event coming up with vintage Chris Vanini and then the good, the bad, and the ugly because the Silver King is riding solo for the second half of the show. We're gonna skip the last word this week. We did get some of those t-shirt questions and I know Chris wants to answer those, but we don't have any more last word questions in our archives that we're, that we pull up and use on the show. So if you want to send in questions for the last word, don't forget, you can hit us up at getting overcast on Twitter. Apparently, there's something going on with Twitter DMs where maybe 
You can't DM people, even if their DMs are open, if you've never spoken with them before, or they don't follow you. If you have any issue DMing us, just tweet us your question at getting overcast. You can also email us about this or anything else you can advertise on the show if you want, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. With all of that said, let's get into the biggest stories in WWE this week, a full breakdown of SmackDown and Raw, and we'll kick it off as we always do by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. So now we welcome vintage Chris Vanini into the show for this co-main event. We're going to kick things off with rules of engagement, Roman Reigns, Jey Uso at SummerSlam. Now, the first time we saw Roman on SmackDown, he was walking backstage with Solo Sokoa and Paul Heyman. We later saw them in the Bloodline locker room with Reigns noticing over his shoulder Sokoa eyeing the red tribal chief necklace that Reigns was thumbing in his hands. And this made me think of one historical wrestling moment in particular that I just could not get out of my head. You're out of line! Well, let me tell you why you're out of line. You got jealous eyes right there. Right there, you're looking at me with jealous eyes. I'm not number three in the mega powers. I'm number one. You guys got me in the backseat. You didn't come at me like a man. You're jealous because I'm the World Wrestling Federation champion now. And I'm going to be a long time this. I mean, does that not fit perfectly? They are clearly doing something with Solo and Roman, either directly relating to the outcome of SummerSlam or perhaps happening after that. For example, I could see Reigns accidentally spearing Sokoa or something when he's trying to help him in that match. That leads to Roman's next feud against Solo. But man, when I saw Reigns notice Sokoa the way he did, obviously coming out of the way, Solo looked at the necklace and wouldn't give it up to Roman during the trial of the Tribal Chief segment a couple weeks ago. I could only think of the mega powers in that moment, Chris. I had the same thought. And this bloodline story over three years now has always done a great job of like planting the seed for the next part of the story mm-hmm. while it's still going on. So like, you know, like solo picked up the, you know, picked it up a few weeks ago. Like they, they've, the Usos have said he should be the tribal chief. Like they've planted this for a few weeks now and it's getting closer and closer right as we're building to the big J Roman stuff. So it's just another little like layer to everything going on here that they're just always on top of, and you always got to pay attention. And it also feeds into Roman's paranoia. And we've seen this so many times from the tribal chief character. On the outside, externally, he exudes confidence and bravado and gravitas, and he's this unstoppable force. But then you catch him in some of these individual moments. And if Jay is getting cheered, he's jealous. You see that jealousy leaking out. Or... If he has the feeling that someone he's working with, Sami Zayn, this happened with a lot, um, and obviously now with Solo, if he thinks, man, are they trying to come after me? I'm, I'm, I have my arm around them. They're part of my family. They're trying to come after me. He has that paranoia in the back of his head too, and now you're seeing that directly with Solo. He actually had it with Paul Heyman previously in the original Brock Lesnar storyline of the Tribal Chief and Brock Lesnar, but obviously that was playing along the entire time. Still, you got that, just the the drip of paranoia coming out of Roman Reigns. And even though not much was accomplished in those two backstage segments, usually we get a real heavy-handed, the bloodline is on the show and you will see them in the ring later and, and you get extensive you know, conversations in the locker room and all that. Even though we didn't get that this week, we got just enough 
to kind of tease us, not just for the main event, but for what's going to happen going forward. So in the main event, uh, Jay kept his head down and stood by the ropes as Roman made his entrance. This got the final 10 minutes of the show once Reigns actually got in the ring. Far less overall time than I expected, given how much they focused on the bloodline in multiple segments over past episodes. They sat at the table, Reigns obviously at the head of the table. He kept calling him Little Jay. Jay said Roman is making him do this because he put Jimmy in the hospital. Reigns said Jay was a soldier and a pawn, and then he signed the contract. Jay ripped it up, saying they don't need one because the contract between them is actually their blood. He said he wanted tribal combat for the basically stipulation of their match. Reigns asked if the elders knew about this. Jay said it was their idea, and it means anything goes. Roman then went on a rant, and he put his title on the table. Jay reminded him it wasn't just about the title, it was tribal combat. So Roman seemingly understood that, removed the necklace, and draped it over the title as fans chanted first tribal combat and then Uso. This symbolically, at least to me, meant the championship and the title of tribal chief, the responsibility, the title, whatever you want to call it, were both on the line. At least, again, that was my take on it. Roman and Jay then locked hands and bent forward to meet foreheads in a cultural like show of respect. Solo looked at Roman here like he was weak, and he went nuts. He flipped the table. He was ready to Samoan spike Jay when Roman stopped him by grabbing his arm the same way that Jay grabbed Solo's arm previously to stop him. I think it was from hurting Jimmy, it was, or Sammy. I'm forgetting mm-hmm. which one yeah. it was. Sammy. Sammy in the yeah. trial, in the previous trial. Um and then with Sokoa in Reign's grasp, kind of being restrained, Jay super kicked his brother, leaving the heels in shock as SmackDown ended. Now, look, this for me, Chris, was an example of good booking and not great execution. It started way too slow. It dragged. For the second time in three weeks, a special segment was promoted without actually being delivered. Like, again, they promoted rules of engagement. That leads me as a viewer to expect a negotiation, a back and forth. Instead, there was a contract ready, which should not have been there at all. Rain signed it without them discussing anything, which shouldn't have happened at all. And then you have Jay ripping it up. That saved the segment. But then he had a lacking explanation for tribal combat. And the way it was presented for me was just a little bit disappointing. Saying the elders called for it, it makes sense. But it felt like he forgot to say it and Roman had to remind him. And by the way, why wouldn't the elders be telling Reigns, the tribal chief, or Paul Heyman, at least, their decision? Why can we not get the elders on the Titantron, like interrupting the rules of engagement and saying, hey, we're not doing this. You guys are going to settle this in tribal combat. And then you get Jay's explanation of it. It was basically, hey, it's an anything goes match. Now, I assume it'll have a twist because my hope at least is There's going to be something special to the aesthetic of the match, maybe weapons that would perhaps be used in Samoan combat versus all the typical wrestling shit. But it just sounded like he was mentioning steel chairs and tables and all the regular stuff. So other than that, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to stand out. Now, look, while the confrontation was disappointing for me, and I just kind of told you why, the end of it, I thought, was exceptionally strong. First, you had Reigns coming to the realization that tribal combat didn't just mean the championship, but his literal title of Tribal Chief. Then you had Sokoa seemingly defying Reigns only to get taken out by Jay. I loved all of that. It just felt like the entire segment operated at like a six from an intensity standpoint. 
when we are used to these being in that eight to 10 range of the last three weeks, I still kind of feel the best segment top to bottom was Jay on his own last week. But again, look, I'll go away from it. It was successful. The stipulation is interesting. It enhanced the build for SummerSlam, the main event. Was it as strong as it possibly could have been? No, I think it could have been a little bit better. Yeah, I tell you what, we were promised rules of engagement, yet we got no David Spade, no Patrick Warburton. I was really disappointed not to see the cast of that mid-2010s hit CBS sitcom, <laughs> Rules of Engagement. I got a couple tweets from people last week after we after I mentioned it on the pod, so shout out to that show. It was a good show. But I, I, I'm with you on basically the whole thing in that the pacing was off and it felt like there was something else that was supposed to have happened. Because we start off with Roman dismissing Jay. He's calling them little Jay. You mm-hmm. seriously, you want this? And then by the end, he's giving them the handshake and nod of respect without anything having happened. Well, what except, happened, just interrupt. Except for, except for Jay saying tribal combat. Right, exactly. Him saying the elders have decided changed Reign's mindset. And that's the part that was missing. Right. Like them, like them saying, like, wait, the elders. You talk to the elders about this. Like, there's a whole like thing going on in the background that we we don't know about. We don't talk about. The only thing mm-hmm. we know about the elders is that they put the thing on Roman at Hell in a Cell 2020 when he beat Jay. Right. That's it. There's been no other elders, you know, talked about. So like, I would have loved something, you know, before the show. Hey, Jay went to Rikishi. He went to mm-hmm. you know. Other people in the Often family, yeah. they had a conversation, and then we get this. You know, like that—that's what was missing. So I, I wonder if we get it next week if we bring some of them in no. or something like that. Now that the elders have been invoked, like, do they come in, or was it just simply, hey, I talked to the elders? Oh, okay, like we're all cool. I respect you. Like that was just—it was a little bit weak. I understand what they were going for. I like the idea, but we have—we have zero context of it. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's one thing to just say the elders. It's another to actually bring them into the fold. And look, I don't think they could use Rikishi because he's obviously the Uso's father. So he would be biased, right? Even if it's familial, he does have a a part of that family he's closer to, which are his sons. But Afa and Sika, like I understand they may not be in good health and they can't get to TV. I fully understand. But can they really not just tape something from their home? Are they... Perhaps they're in that bad of health where they can't even do that. And if so, I fully understand. But this Anoi family is enormous. You cannot find people who we know to play these roles or or deliver some type of message or have Paul Heyman receive a phone call backstage. He whispers it to Reigns. Reigns is upset. They get into the ring. They start talking rules of engagement. And then Heyman relates the phone call that he received from the elders or Jay gets a phone call backstage and we see him having the conversation and we see him smile because it sounds good to him. And then he relates that in the ring. It's you're right. It's like this other thing happened that played a huge role in setting this match the way it's been set. And we didn't get any other element introducing it. Something as great as them being in person or them being on the Titan Tron, but as minimal as a phone call. I love the idea of tribal combat. I love the idea. It's great. Of, yeah. Hey, the, hey, I went to the elders to determine like there, there's like Roman is the chief, but there's like a council that's like his Congress that keeps him in check or something. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm well, don't I, forget I wanted, the last time the elders, the last time the elders were invoked was they sent solo to help yes. him with Drew McIntyre. So we have initially, you know, with the necklace, when they donned 
the necklace on Reigns and made him tribal chief. And they had Solo. And now they're stepping in again for tribal combat. But it just feels like I want more of that. I want the depth to the story. And I don't feel like we're getting the depth. Yeah. But I still think there's, like I said, you can do something to bring in the family, like more of the family, like we've always wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm good. It's just like you opened a door to something here, but you're only giving us a little peek. And that little peek without the context went from Roman Reigns dismissing Jay to him stopping Solo from hitting Jay. Like mm-hmm. This is a like that tells us this is a major thing that this happened. And we just we have like no context to it. That's that that's the only thing I was like, oh, man, I like I want more of that. But like I'm also I'm also like they did a good job of, of making it feel like a big deal. Mm-hmm. But. It just it just leads to more questions, even if Reigns like paused when Jay said that and like whispered to Heyman, like, can they actually do this? Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Something to sell it a little bit more than they actually did. But Chris, besides all that, because you're you're in agreement with me, which I mean, I always like when people agree with me. But do you also still see that segment as being successful in achieving the goal they wanted? I do largely because of everything that happened once they stood up. Yes. Try to explaining that tribal combat means the chief role is on the line. Like they made it feel like it's a big deal. Roman changing the way he did respecting Jay, it made it feel like a big deal for mm-hmm. sure. My only question is again, another question just pops up tribal combat. Like what does Jay lose for invoking it and not following through? Well, you know? he's not invoking like, it. The, the elders invoked it. Well, that's my see that was my problem that That was my problem with it if the elders were invoking it they would invoke it to the tribal chief he said it was their idea i don't know if that means they said tribal combat my thought was they went to jay said hey jay you should do tribal combat okay hey, i'm doing tribal combat in that and if it's that the context is well if jay loses then something should happen to him Mm. for challenging him you know like like in black panther when you try to become the black panther you fight to the death like if you don't win it you're supposed to die generally so like there's got to be some give and take or otherwise like why are people not just invoking tribal combat whenever they want do the do the elders have to approve it like i don't know i would say it's something that these are the kayfabe questions i have no no it's these are fair questions but i mean i'm giving you kayfabe answers here i would say very clearly it's something that is like the last resort it is that it is if if the tribal chief title is going to be on the line if the necklace or the responsibilities of that role are going to be up for grabs, then that needs to be decided in tribal combat, which is why rules of engagement made sense for this segment because it did ultimately come down to them invoking something special. The problem Mm -hmm. was if you're going to have a face-to-face rules of engagement, then you're thinking negotiation, especially when Paul Heyman is there. For Heyman to be there and not say a word when this is your master negotiator, right? Um, similarly with the trial of the tribal chief, he comes out, he's like, I'm going to be the defense. And then he doesn't say anything. Well, this is the guy I want talking. I know it's about the Samoans and I know Roman and Jay are the Samoans in the, in the storyline, but he is the special counsel. He is the wise man. And I want him involved when it comes to the machinations of the Samoan dynasty. And he hasn't been involved. So again, it really just feels like the idea was solid. They nailed the second half, but the first half was just kind of lackluster. Just needed some more. Like like if, if Jay says tribal combat and Roman's confused and he goes to Paul Heyman and Paul Heyman gets on the mic and explains, you know, what it is, you know, like the elders do this and tribal combat makes right. that. Like 
I, I, I can't, it, once it's been invoked, I have no power here. You know, like it's, you know, like yes. something like that. Yes, like, exactly. A good way to throw it all in together, use Heyman and just kind of explain it more. The last time this was invoked was 1974 when this and this happened. Yes, there are so many interesting ways that they could have added to it. And I know that you're going to say, well, Silver King, you were angry that they did a 30 minute segment two weeks ago and now you wanted it longer than 10 minutes. No, I just wanted it better. <laughs> That's really all it was. I just wanted it a little bit better. But look, the end result still is it's an intriguing story. There were a lot of additional elements mm -hmm. that they added. It's just, could it have been better? Yes. And this is the second time in three weeks we are saying it could have been better, where previously we're usually just saying, hey, two thumbs up. Let me tell you guys why it was so great. And for some reason in this storyline, it just seems to be missing a little bit something from the execution standpoint. Now, there's another element to this that we can discuss. And one of our listeners spelled it out perfectly in a DM. So I actually, I had a couple notes. I erased them. I'm just going to read his message. I believe it's to him. Uh, there's no gender on the profile. Uh, it just goes by Sports and Reality TV. That's their name. Here's what they said. It feels like they are just missing the sweet spot on the Jay and Roman story. Don't get me wrong, it is still great, but I think they're going in the wrong direction with the reasoning for the match. They're putting so much of the focus on Jimmy being taken out, but the story we've been hanging on for three years is the extreme manipulation and gaslighting Roman has put Jay through. That's the story I wish they were flushing out more. I need the emotional Jay promo about what Roman's put him through. I want the incredible video package I know they can put together showcasing it. Am I wrong here? So... I think you're both right and wrong. Jimmy is and has been from the beginning a huge part of the Jay story. The reason Jay eventually submitted to Roman after fighting him for so long was because Reigns was threatening Jimmy at Hell in a Cell. That's the genesis of the storyline that came before the extreme levels of gaslighting when Jimmy was still not cleared and he wasn't there and it was just Roman and Jay. And to be fair... That was acknowledged in the trial of the tribal chief two weeks ago. It's just, as I said then, that trial segment was not as successful telling that story as it should have been. That was the opportunity to do it. They showed that Exhibit A video package, and it included a lot of that, but that was it. That segment was the time where they could have dived into Rain's treatment of Jay Moore and that's exactly why my criticism was so strong of that segment, especially for something that went a half hour, there wasn't enough of the relationship explored. But now, two weeks after that, with SummerSlam on deck, that opportunity's passed by. And Jimmy is, in many ways, the right fulcrum for the story because the bloodline is about the entire family, not just Roman and Jay. And of course, Jay is going to be defending his brother. How many times can you really keep going back to the gaslighting? Again, it should have been covered two weeks ago. I think it's fair to argue that protecting his brother, Chris, is more important to Jay than the fact that he was gaslit and abused because he fought against that for so long. The only reason he ever succumbed to it was to protect Jimmy in the first place. So to answer the, the DM, no, they did not spend enough time focusing on it, but simultaneously what they are doing now does make sense. Well, that goes back to what I, I've said before on this, and that is Jay already accomplished his storyline goal. He broke away from Reigns, did his own thing, right? pinned Roman for the first time in 19, whatever, several years. 
and got his moment. Now he's reaching further. Same thing with Sammy, breaking away from the bloodline, finding true friendship and true family. He reaches, you know, goes for that title, doesn't get it. But, like, he accomplished what he... Like, J, that story, the J, the gaslighting, we, we're past that now. Like, he he beat it. But yeah. you're right, they didn't explain it enough. That That's something where this... The last couple of weeks with all this Bloodline stuff, including this week, we've said many times it's the greatest story in wrestling history. That's also why we feel like it could give us more. Right. Just get, give us, give us Jay explaining, you know, hey, you were gaslighting me, but I'm free from you now. Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. Like just, like just put a point on that. Uh, he he's shown that, but just put a little point on it, and then hey, give us a little bit more background on this elder stuff and, and all that. So like, they've told that story. I just feel like there's bits and pieces you could just add a little bit more here and there, but the overall story has worked, and I think they they have told that Jay story. We're just. We're in the extra credit now. Like Jay's playing mm-hmm. with house money here. He already, you know, broke free of Roman. Now he's trying for something more. Yeah, the idea would have been two weeks ago during the trial to show more footage of it and have Jay kind of start yeah. talking about it. And then last week during that Jay promo, which by the way, we praised with no notes. I mean, last week was incredible what Jay did. Um, when he was solo in the ring by himself, no pun intended on the solo, when he was in the ring by himself and he cut that promo, that was another opportunity for him to say, you know, you abused me, you took advantage of me, um, you gaslit me, so on and so forth. And I'm not going to take that anymore. I've already pinned you. I've ended, I've, I've erased this facade that you've built. Now I'm going to take your championship and now I'm going to take your crown of tribal chief. That was the element they could have added. They didn't. It doesn't make it suddenly a disappointing story. It's just, we've been talking about this for three years and the entire time we've been discussing Roman Reigns and the bloodline storyline. And yes, you, you said it, I've called it. I, I said this months ago. I said this before WrestleMania, yeah. but especially now it's the greatest wrestling storyline of all time. It just is. So when we are now existing in it and we're wondering when it's going to conclude and how it's going to conclude, we want every single element reference. We want all the depth. We want the elders we want more because we've gotten so much. And when we're not getting it, exactly. we're going to point that out just as we would any other individual element. If there was something during the Sami Zayn part of the storyline that didn't completely line up with the way he talks about Kevin Owens, we would call that out. Same thing here. It's just, we want it to be a 10 out of 10. And if it's not going to be a 10 out of 10, and this goes for anything in wrestling, by the way, it's not just Roman Reigns in the bloodline. We talk about this with matches, right? We could say, hey, this match was incredible. Here's why it was so great. I wish they did this. And it's really the same thing here. Yep. I, because so much of it has been a 10 out of 10. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They, they've delivered in, in so many. Like, this wasn't this wasn't bad. I like it. It just, it was, there was enough there that I wanted more. Like, oh man, like the elders, like, oh, that's like, that's interesting. Tell me more, tell me more about that. You know, I, yeah. I like, hold on here, hold on here. What, what does this all mean? I want to know because, because uh, it was good. It's like going to like a Michelin star restaurant and you have a great piece of steak, some incredible wine, some awesome lobster and the bread is delicious, but then you get a packet of butter. You're like, why are you giving me a packet of butter? Whip some fresh butter and put it on the damn table. The rest of this meal has been so incredible. It's, it's the same general idea as that. All right, Chris, that was the first half of this double main event. Let's move to the second half, and we are sticking with SmackDown for the reasons I mentioned earlier. You will not be here to discuss Raw on this show, but we do have a lot to talk about from what else that happened on SmackDown. 
Let's go to the United States Championship Invitational, the second of as many matches. Rey Mysterio, Sheamus, Cameron Grimes, and LA Knight in what's the equivalent of a number one contendership semifinal. Knight was again the only one to cut a promo. He just talked his usual shit. He got a huge reaction. Austin Theory sat ringside. He was not on commentary like last week. Good decision. There was a really cool spot with Ray throwing Grimes with the Huracarana into Knight for a spear. Ray joined Sheamus for 10 beats on the other guys. Sheamus countered a 619 into an Irish curse. They wound up doing a combo powerbomb German suplex superplex spot out of the corner, which was really cool. Knight avoided a bro kick, catching Sheamus's leg for what was supposed to be a one-leg spinebuster, but didn't execute that well. Ray flew in for a splash. Knight hit Sheamus with a burning hammer variant. Grimes got Mysterio with the Spanish crossbody. Ray hit a double 619 on Sheamus and Grimes. Then he splashed Grimes with Theory pulling him out of the ring and throwing him into the steel steps. Santos Escobar ran down and attacked Theory into the crowd. Knight then ate a bro kick. Sheamus ate Caven from Grimes. And then Mysterio caught Grimes with a Huracarana fold-over pinning combination for the win to a surprisingly big reaction. Not because Ray won, but because Knight did not win. So the fact that Mysterio won, he still got a huge pop. So this is extremely interesting booking for a multitude of reasons. First, obviously, there are babyface stablemates who are going to be fighting in the final next week. They showed respect and love for each other after the bell. I find that booking to be intriguing. Second, of course, is Knight not winning. While I was surprised, we did discuss last week how Escobar Knight did not make any sense as a final. And I did a news post earlier Friday in which I indicated to anyone who read it that Escobar or Mysterio was likely to come out of this Invitational, not LA Knight. Our official getting overheads got a chance to see that before SmackDown. Buymeacoffee.com slash getting over $5 a month. What I found most curious is that Knight barely got any offense in this match. He was the least active guy of the four. And honestly, that may only speak to the fact that, like, let's just be candid here. He's not that great in the ring. The wrestling aspect is his weak spot. Let's take a beat before we get into the larger conversation of Knight's booking since WrestleMania. In terms of this segment, the match, it wasn't as strong as last week, but it was still a damn good way to kick off the show. And on top of that, Chris, Ray got a fantastic reaction for winning when you might've thought fans would otherwise be inclined to be upset that LA Knight didn't win. So I thought it was extremely successful, you know, probably like 3.5 stars in a B, not as good of a match as last week, but still a really, really, really solid invitational semifinal. Uh, yeah, we'll hold the LA Knight, th- LA Knight thoughts for a second. Mm-hmm. The match was fun. The finish was hot. The crowd went big for Ray because they like Ray. You know, it wasn't just, you know, because of LA Knight. You mentioned Theory not being on commentary. They even said, Barrett says, uh, Theory's not on commentary because Michael Cole offended him last week. So (laughs) he's not wrong, but like, yeah, we talked about it last week. Michael Cole really just really got the upper hand on Austin Theory on commentary, which is generally not what you want. (laughs) So uh, made sense switching them. Mm -hmm. Ray Santos, you know, it, it makes it, it's a story they have been telling. And we love Santos. Mm-hmm. We've said he's future star face of the company type of guy. And and so like ultimately, like 
I'm not surprised totally that this is the result. You know, once Santos won last week, we were like, oh, how's that exactly going to work? And so that's what we're going with. I have to assume Santos is winning now. I know we have assumed LA Knight is winning, but this has to be Santos now to tell that story. And if it's Santos theory, that seems like the ideal put this on the SmackDown before SummerSlam uh, type of match. I don't think Santos theory is a SummerSlam match with everything else that's on the card. So those are my thoughts on that. And I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. So there's two ways to think about who might win next week, just since you brought it up. One is you have Santos Escobar win. You put him over. Ray daps him up afterward and, and cheers with him. Not upset that he lost because he's the future. Even though, by the way, I think he's 39 years old. Yeah, um, <laughs> I didn't know that either. Santos <laughs> he is, Escobar is 39. Yeah, he's, he's basically the same age as LA Knight. Um, but, still, yes. but still, he's young to the audience in terms of familiarity, right? So that could be a crowning moment for him. The other option is you kind of put Rey Mysterio in the Gunther role of... I almost said leveling up uh, that I reserve for AEW of upgrading um, or improving the stature of the United States Championship, which let's be candid, has fallen off pretty significantly under theory. And you say, hey, Ray, get strapped up. You're going to wrestle every other week for the next three months. And this thing is going to be really prestigious. And then maybe Ellie Knight beats you or whomever, right? That Those are the two directions they can go with the final of this U.S. invitation, whoever comes out of it, and then deciding who is going to potentially beat Theory. The other option is they can have Theory retain. That's another conversation for another day. Let's talk about LA Knight because that's what you want to talk about. Yeah. If this was 2021, I'd probably go on a rant about Knight not winning here. But as far as I'm concerned, look. Triple H has done enough over the last year to earn our trust, especially when he talks about having patience. The current booking of Judgment Day, including Damian Priest, EO Sky, Becky Lynch, the way Cody Rhodes has been handled after WrestleMania, what's happened with Dominic, even though people weren't pining for him to get a huge push. Rhea Ripley people were. That's another example, obviously part of Judgment Day. That's all proof that the trust in him, at least as of right now, is deserved. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. So with that said, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not gonna do what everyone thinks I'm gonna do. Flip out, man. And what's funny is I really had a hard time deciding whether to go with the half-baked or the Jerry Maguire version for that drop. But anyway, back to LA Knight. I'm just not that concerned. He's been the only guy to get promos each of the last two weeks. He did not take the fall. He called out Theory and the title directly. And as I assumed last week when we broke down the card, the US title is not going to be on SummerSlam anyway. So I feel like people would have shit on him winning the US title on TV because Oh, how could they not have put this on Wrestle on uh, SummerSlam? LA Knight is so damn over. I'm sure he's going to get a significant storyline after WrestleMania. Now, yes, you can argue he should have already been in a major program after WrestleMania. That's fair. And even if you assume Backlash plans were set, which they probably were, they've had two plus months since Backlash. 
to pivot tonight. What's most frustrating to me is not so much WWE's handling of Knight. They're doing much of what we've asked them to do with him. It's this inability for fans to have even the slightest shred of patience. Yes, he should be piling up wins even if he's not getting strapped up. Yes, there is some deserved criticism here for them not pivoting faster. But it's not like he's cooling down. If anything, he's only getting hotter and garnering bigger reactions week after week. And you know what? That may be playing into exactly what their plans are. So yes, I recognize this is something worth discussing and worth critiquing. But in this role that I have here as this impartial observer, I'm just not that concerned about it, Chris. Oh, okay. Let me talk to you here as the resident LA Knight to the moon pusher on this podcast for like a year plus. I am very unhappy that he is not going to wrestle for the U.S. title. He absolutely should be. Even if you had this plan for Santos Escobar and you thought this is Santos Escobar's time, it's not. It's L.A. Knight's time. Sometimes things change and you got to go with it. That said, I had people saying on Twitter to me on Friday that he's buried, that Vince hates him, that yada, yada, yada. And I got to pull you back off of that ledge because, like you said, we've done every they've done everything we've asked them to do with L.A. Knight. They even gave us an L.A. Knight promo before the match, Mm -hmm. which is something they never. What did we say? Like anytime he walks to the ring, he should have a mic in his hand. Yes. In the last couple of weeks, they are doing that. He got he was the only person to get a promo in front of the audience last week. He only person gets a promo in front of the crowd here. They are throwing him up on social media everywhere. Mm-hmm. They know people love this guy and they are trying to give you everything they can except for him winning this match here. So, no, he is not being buried. Being buried means you're not on the card anymore. They're not talking about you. This is he is still getting pushed just because he didn't win doesn't mean he's not getting pushed. He should be being pushed more and higher, but he's still being pushed. And yes, it's very possible he gets a program coming out of SummerSlam and they start to go with him more. I also thought about the Cody Rhodes stuff and how upset we were that Cody didn't win at WrestleMania after all the build and everything. And and Triple H said afterward, like, be patient sometimes. You know, I, I wouldn't be upset if I knew we had more coming. And Cody's still as hot as ever. And I wouldn't, I would understand if WWE wants to be like, hey, let's ride this out where he's at right now for a period of time to make sure it doesn't fall off, to make sure whatever, make sure he can sustain even if he's not getting the biggest match. Sure, whatever you want to say. But it is one of the, as for the Vince thing, people say, oh, Vince hate, hates LA Knight. That's why Santos Escobar is winning. Guys, Triple H loves Santos Escobar. <laughs> he has loved him the whole time. They brought everybody up, NXT, everything. Like, this doesn't mean it's a Vince thing. I do think it's possible it's a Vince thing, but that's not, it's, it, it's larger than that. They love Santos Escobar. We love Santos Escobar. Triple H loves Santos Escobar. So, LA Knight's going to keep getting pushed. Let's hope they finally get him in a good program. He can get some of those wins. I am extremely sad and upset and sad that I probably won't see him at SummerSlam. 
but that doesn't mean he's going away. That doesn't mean they're pulling the cord on him. It's just going to take longer and it's going to suck now, but I am hopeful. And like you said, trust Triple H that there is a plan because he has deserved that benefit of the doubt. WWE deserves some benefit of the doubt for what they've been doing with LA Knight over the last month. They know people like him. They want to give him to us as much as they can. We just want more. And that's just a fact of life. It absolutely is. And and let's remember as well, you know, again, I said earlier, it's not 2021 where like we would be worried that Vince fully has the book and he doesn't know what the fans want. Or if he does, he will actively combat what they want. Triple H right. isn't like that. And even though Vince does have final say in creative from what I have been told consistently, it's top line stuff. It's like who the next world champion is going to be. And it's generally Triple H coming up with everything and Vince either approving, not approving, or providing suggestions. So when you're getting into the minutia of mid-card title picture and whether it's Escobar or LA Knight, you know, just because LA Knight was in the semifinal doesn't mean the plan was ever for him to win it, either the, the Invitational itself or the United States Championship. So people, some people are freaking out the plans changed. Some people are freaking out that he's getting buried, which obviously is not true, as you explained. And others are saying, well, he's getting cooled off because they're not running all the way with him right now. Let me also remind you, it's not 2021. It's also not 1996, okay? In 1996, you know, Steve Austin, he got the Stone Cold nickname. They put him over at King of the Ring. When they put him over at King of the Ring, the plan was not for him to become the number one star in the company. That promo, coupled with the way they capitalized on it, did lead to that. Steve Austin in 1996, hold on, was not 39 years old or 40 years old, number one. But the more important thing is WWE was suffering from a dearth of star talent in 1996. So they saw this guy percolating and the crowd reacting to him. And they realized we need to go with this guy. The number one storyline on SmackDown right now, it is not LA Knight as much as people love him. You love him. I like him very much. Almost love. (laughs) It is the freaking bloodline, okay? And if they had plans to elevate the LWO and Rey Mysterio, I mean, people complain the WWE needs to do more representation and they need to diversify their title pictures. And then they go and do it and you're angry that LA Knight isn't getting his opportunity. It's it's like one thing after another. It's like, oh, EO Sky didn't beat Bianca Belair in Puerto Rico when the crowd was going crazy for her. I can't believe they they didn't go with it. Like they were going to make a snap judgment in the middle of that match. Well, guess what? A few months later, EO Sky won money in the bank. Okay. Damian Priest, man, he should really get his flowers uh, doing the stuff with Bad Bunny. He's improved so much. When are they going to strap a rocket to Damian Priest? Wins money in the bank. Involved in matches with Seth Rollins, you know, and and this top level storyline with Judgment Day and Finn Balor. And it's just like, yes, okay, I agree with all of you, okay? Coming out of WrestleMania, you and I both thought he should have had a moment at WrestleMania. It was ridiculous that LA Knight couldn't get a promo at some point in a two-night WrestleMania. It was stupid, especially when going into it, he's like, how can you have a LA WrestleMania without LA Knight? Yeah, it didn't make any sense. And now, I agree with many of you, going into SummerSlam, There is no clear path for this guy to be on the show. Now, if they put him on the show and it's a promo segment or something on stage or or whatever they do, 
then that's going to solve a lot of my issues right off the bat because they'll be recognizing the star power and putting them in front of a really big crowd. But if all you all wanted was for him to win this tournament and beat Theory for the title on the SmackDown before SummerSlam, and he wasn't going to appear on SummerSlam anyway, I got to tell you, it's not that big of a deal that he's not put in that spot. The US title as of right now doesn't mean much. It's a title for title's sake. He doesn't need the title to get over, just like he doesn't need money in the bank to get over. I'm not concerned about LA Knight. I'm just not worried about it. He's over. They notice he's over. They're putting him front and center in all of their shit, like you explained. They're not just going to say, ah, screw this guy. He's not exactly what we wanted at the exact right time we want, so let's bury him. My belief is they had plans, they're executing those plans, and they're finding an opportunity to get LA Knight in, probably after SummerSlam. I I, I trust them to do it right, but that doesn't mean it's not absolutely stupid that they're not doing it now. If LA Knight does do a promo segment on SummerSlam just to pop the crowd, that's an admission of, hey, this guy's incredibly popular, and we couldn't get him on the second biggest show of the year for some stupid reason. Like yeah. that just It makes them look bad. Just... It, it's reacting my to the argument, fans, but also the fact that they still just couldn't make something happen. My argument would be, if you don't want him winning this Invitational and winning the U.S. title, fine. But in the prior six weeks or so, he should have been having singles matches against other people on SmackDown, winning and cutting promos. That way you're building up this guy's profile and you're, you're putting him front and center and you're saying he's important. We know you guys like him. We're going to treat him as important. And okay, we're not giving him the U.S. title now, but you all know that we are bought into this guy. And if you visit SmackDown, if you buy a ticket for SmackDown, if you tune in on Fox or FS1, you will see LA Knight. And, and they I think ha- we're there. They haven't. We're just getting there now. The yes. argument I would make is we should have been there six weeks ago. I agree. Like, like again, like LA Knight is not the number one story on SmackDown, but I think he's the number two. In terms of just like mainstream get like he is for me, he's sometimes the number one thing I'm most looking forward to when Friday night pops up. Like I'm watching SmackDown live more than I would sometimes because I'm like, eh, like LA Knight's hot right now. I kind of want to see what they do. with mm-hmm. he, there, You've got people who are casual wrestling fans or, or don't know at all. Like the Pop-Tarts Bowl uh, tweeted at me like a couple weeks ago, some LA Knight, you know, memes. You like, keep mentioning he, the Pop-Tarts he, Bowl. You're trying to put over the Pop-Tarts Bowl. I will admit it's better than the I just, Duke's I'm Mayo Bowl. It's so like out there yeah that it's like in this corner of the internet where people know about it like it's it's getting over in a way and that's why i just i just think it's a wrong decision to go with santos now is what it is see i I that's where i I think he's great he's not gonna elevate that title and la knight would and that title needs that and that's the unfortunate thing it is gonna get relegated to the smackdown even if it was la knight regulated to the smackdown that he would elevate that belt. And that is what it needs. That is what people are supposed to do with the belt as opposed to the belt elevating somebody else. And I feel like they're going to put the belt on Santos as a way to elevate him when you could be doing it the other way around. See, that's where I directly disagree with you because I don't treat it, everyone's treating it, and you just did, and I'm not trying to come at you, but you're treating it as a zero-sum game. It's If he doesn't win the U.S. title, then whatever he does now doesn't matter. That's no, not, not true. That. No, no, I know you're I'm, not saying that, but yeah. that's that's the perspective by saying, well, they didn't go with him for the title, and that's a huge mistake. It's not necessarily a mistake as long as this Friday on SmackDown or in the next two weeks or, or very, very, very soon, he gets into a program that matters. As long as there's something else for him that's on par with being US champion, which you just said, 
as of right now, doesn't really mean that much. So you strap him with a belt that doesn't really mean that much. The argument is, did he need it in the first place? So as long as whatever they have planned for him, and hopefully it starts this Friday, or if not this Friday, it starts literally the Friday after uh, SummerSlam. But in the next three SmackDowns, he needs to have a program that is upper mid-card caliber. And as long as he does, then him not winning the U.S. title to me does not matter. But if they put him in this low card feud with like, I don't even know what heels are on, like carrying cross. Like if AJ Styles beats cross and then LA Knight starts feuding with cross, then I'm going to say, all right, yeah, nope. they should have won the U S title. But if it's not that, if it's better than that, then I'm going to say, Hey, they're putting him on something in a feud. That's going to be on screen constantly for multiple weeks. And that is a huge positive. And eventually he's going to get a title. Titles are not end all be all. It's not UFC, folks. It's WWE. It's professional wrestling. My my biggest problem is that the last three big things he's been involved in, he keeps saying, you can't have an LA WrestleMania without LA Knight. Well, guess what? They did. Right. He has his great two promos with Logan Paul. I'm getting that briefcase. I'm the favorite for this briefcase. He didn't get the briefcase. Mm-hmm. Now he said, I'm coming for that US title. I'm going to be the US champion. He's not going to be the US champion. Like, he, you, like, I know they're pushing him, but you can't keep having him talk a big game and not back it up. Mm-hmm. That is going to damage the character. And th- that is just another thing that like they got to be careful with. Mm-hmm. Because if he, like he's a big charismatic guy, that's like his whole thing. If he keeps falling short, yeah, we're going to cheer for the catchphrases and everything. But like then we're going to start to lose that trust. Then you start taking some shine off of the character. So that's why it's like. I don't know if they've had a plan for him or not through anything that has happened this year. Like, I, it's just, it's no, I don't think they have bizarre that yeah. they, they, things are, he's getting over and over and they're getting him close and pulling him back, getting him close and pulling him back. And like, it's just what they do this Friday is going to be very, very important. Agreed. Yeah. And what they do coming out of SummerSlam, like you got to give us a reason to still believe in this guy. Because he just, it's just, you got to be careful with how much you do that. And I don't want them to waste it. It comes across to me like they had well-laid plans for Damian Priest and Santos Escobar slash Rey Mysterio. We'll see who ultimately wins. And they realized LA Knight was super over. So they integrated him into both of those storylines. That way he was involved in prominent things. But because they had plans, they stuck with their plans and did not pivot which again, you can criticize if, if that's your belief that, you know, they had all these well-laid plans, but no, LA Knight's so hot that he has to have one of those two, the briefcase or the US title, and he has to have it by SummerSlam. Then that's a totally fine take. I'm not that's of that. I'm, and that's fine. I'm not of that belief only because this again is not 2021. Triple H has the book and he has rewarded patience consistently over the last year. And by the way, that is something else. Like I wish you were here for the entire show today because this is the one year anniversary. I think it was a couple days ago of Triple H taking the book officially. Vince McMahon retiring temporarily, obviously, and Trips primarily getting the book in WWE. And we always talk on the show about reevaluating things after three, six months, a year. Well, this is the opportunity to reevaluate Triple H. So next week on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, perhaps briefly, 
because it will be the WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview Edition. We will have some type of look at one year of WWE creative under Triple H. And when we do that uh, episode, we'll have another week of SmackDown to see what they do with LA Knight, if anything, uh, before SummerSlam. there's, There's a funny note on that too. In my notes, I have a tweet from the Getting Over account. I've been holding it okay. for a moment. And that'll be the moment to do that. It was July 25th, 2022. Okay. And um, there, there's a tweet you made about Triple H getting the book. That's literally, and, just so everyone knows, it's literally one year from us taping this show right now. Yes. And I want, we'll come back to it probably next week. That'll be a good time to well, do it. Well, what's the tweet? What's it say? Okay, I'll just do it now. Actually, it, it ties into this. Sure. You said think you said think about what's possible. With Triple H at the helm and some of these talents: Johnny Gargano, Candice, yeah. Finn Balor. Johnny yeah. was injured. Champ Balor, Champ promoted. Yeah, yeah. Balor's good. Champa, yeah, he got hurt. Like that's right. Mm-hmm. Io Shirai, mm-hmm. doing great. Gunther, mm-hmm. doing great. Mustafa Ali, eh, not so much. Chad Gable, doing great. Cedric Alexander. Mm. Die Jack still in NXT. Ricochet getting a big SummerSlam match. Yep. So many, and you said so many more. And I replied on one year ago, <laughs> July 25th, 2022. I replied with LA Knight. <laughs> and here we are, one year later, where everybody's furious that LA Knight, who is getting pushed, is not getting pushed even more. So I just, we were both right on those. And I By was the way, glad that I pointed that one out. We'll go over that again next week, but Mustafa Ali and Dijak both in NXT doing way more than they were on the main roster. So they didn't have space for them on the main roster. Fine. But they're still in a way better position than they were a year ago. So that list, it's kind of holding true. And there's names I didn't even mention on that list that in retrospect, you know, knowing that LWO would happen and some of these other things, I would have mentioned Santos Escobar and some of these other people. So that's really interesting. I'm glad that you had that. And we will discuss next week right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. There is still one more segment to discuss, though, from this entire feud that happened uh, on SmackDown. So let's get to that, and then we'll wrap up the main event. So later backstage, after all this transpired in the Invitational semifinal, Theory complained to Adam Pierce about Escobar's attack on him. He demanded a match. Pierce made a title match, but Theory clarified that he meant non-title. So Pierce agreed. I was floored by this, okay? It did not make a shred of sense to me. Escobar may be the one challenging for the title in two weeks. You're in the middle of a number one contendership invitational. So why the fuck would you give away Theory Escobar here? Especially with the head of SmackDown, the head of booking, let's say, in kayfabe, Adam Pierce, willing to give away a title match when they're in the middle of determining a number one contender. This was a completely nonsensical booking before the bell even rang. And spoiler, even though I liked the result, it was still nonsensical after it. I'll explain that in a moment. Let's break down the match first. So we had Theory against Escobar in a non-title match. Santos had a rocket of a tope suicida on Theory into the announce table. Escobar then took him literally off the top rope and the top of the ring post with a hurricanrana into the ring, it was sick. He followed with Phantom Driver for the squeaky clean win in what ended up being a fantastic showcase match for him. He got a huge pop from the crowd, probably the best response he's received individually. I saw some of these weird wrestling 
Twitter accounts saying no one cares about Escobar. That was not the case whatsoever. If you watched and listened to that crowd, it was actually impressive that he got a reaction as strong as he did. Now, don't get me wrong. Escobar winning, not just that, winning in this fashion, it was fantastic. There's perhaps no bigger gringo fan of his than I am. And I use that qualifier because he probably has numerous fans where they're his favorite wrestler. Really strong stuff in the ring, 3.5 stars B. But it doesn't change the fact that Escobar is in the middle of a number one contendership invitational, yet he just beat the champion and he beat him clean. So as Becky Lynch can tell you. She beat the champion to be able to beat the champion. That doesn't make any sense. Santos should now be the number one contender, regardless of whether he defeats Ray next week. Unless they have Ray beat Santos and they put Escobar in a triple threat match because he beat Theory one-on-one. But even then, it feels unnecessarily messy. And we don't need a triple threat in the first place. On top of that, they had Theory lose a match before he presumably loses the title which lowers his profile even further for no good reason whatsoever. This was one of two bookings on SmackDown that I just felt was a mixed bag on Friday night. The other we'll talk about in the next segment, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Chris, like, I hope you stayed with me here. Happy for Escobar, really good match. Didn't make a shred of sense. Yeah, I honestly kind of forgot about this. It makes no sense. Like, I'm sure they have a plan. Like we just said, they're probably going along with their plans, but right. like, what? Like, I know I said, I think Santos comes out of this as U.S. champ, but like maybe Ray wins next week and Santos gets in like, or or maybe Theory does retain in the end, which is like the worst possible scenario out of everything going on here. So like totally bizarre. Like you, if you want to give Santos Escobar a big win, like fine, but like the U.S. champ, like he should get a title match now. What He doesn't need to fight Ray. Exactly. So confused by this. I'm sure there will be a resolution, but in the moment, it's extremely bizarre. Yeah. And like, you could have done this where like, Santos loses to, um, uh, say, Grayson Waller wins last week. Mm-hmm. And, and, and LA Knight wins the US, the, wins the final Fatal 4-Way this week. But Santos Escobar beat Theory, you know, uh, in this match this week. So you make it a triple threat at, whatever show and Santos wins it there or something. I, I don't know. I'm just very confused at the order of all of this happening. And yeah, it's just, it's weird. Like obviously more is going to happen. So we can't make a final judgment now, but just very weird. This is one of the, it feels like one of those situations where like we heavily criticize it when it happens. And then a week or two weeks later, like, oh, that's why they did that. Okay. We take it back. Like it's possible mm-hmm. that happens here, but you made the right point. If theory cost Escobar, last week and then Escobar saved Ray this week and then beat Theory one-on-one, there'd be a reason to involve him in that number one contendership final, make it a triple threat. Maybe yeah. Escobar wins, then beats Theory for the title. And and now you've elevated him. He's gotten Ray's back. He won his way in and he's totally deserving as the champion. Instead, it's and just L- like- and LA, and LA Knight got a win in there. And LA Knight gets a win in there, right. Instead, it's just like, why did you- do it this way unless the plan, and look, it's not impossible, is Mysterio wins next week. Escobar is pissed because he doesn't get a title match, yet he's the one who beat Theory. He costs Ray, and the LWO turns heel. Like, that could happen. I, I don't think it will because 
it really seems like they're promoting Santos as a baby face, a big time baby face. Right. And yeah, I'm really, really, really confused by this. So I wanted to lay it out that way here. And obviously we will see if it's a foot and mouth moment where next week or two weeks from now, all of a sudden it comes together and it does make sense. But right now it just doesn't. One other item involving these guys I want to mention before we get out of here, I would be remiss not to say that there was a social media segment posted Friday night with Rey Mysterio meeting Dragon Lee for the first time, at least in WWE. They were really complimentary of each other. Dragon Lee basically told Ray, my plan is to beat Dominic for the North American title. Ray gave him his blessing and he also agreed to be in his corner if or when that happens. So if you want to talk about strapping a rocket to someone, giving Dragon Lee the rub from Rey Mysterio, almost as his heir apparent, because they're both diminutive luchadors, that would be incredible. And it would make so much sense to me to use Dominic as a transitional champion from Wesley to Dragon Lee with Ray helping Dragon beat his son for the title, continuing their long-term feud. So I loved this segment. If you didn't see it, go check out WWE's Twitter account or their YouTube. You can check it out. But it was worthwhile for them to do. And it makes me really excited about the plans for the North American title. Yes. And and since I got a bounce here, let me just say, shout out, you'll, you'll get to it, but shout out Dom Mysterio, main event of Raw, NXT, and SmackDown in the same week. Yep. I don't think that's ever happened. And he did great. So like, shout out to him. You'll get into that later in the show. But like, oof, that was impressive. And, and yeah, so Dragon Lee makes sense now as the guy to do it. And I like that setup first superstar to be in the main event match of all three shows, uh, because obviously the main event of SmackDown was the rain segment, but yes, he was the yes, first yes, WWE so. superstar to main event all three shows in the same week in terms of a wrestling match. That is astounding. It's Dominic Mysterio. That's the answer to that trivia. And question. actually, how's this? I pulled up his uh, cage match. Uh, I'm uh page mm-hmm. and uh, he wrestled Saturday. He fought Seth Rollins uh, in a house show match in Mexico. Mexico City uh, for the World Heavyweight title. He didn't win, but like got it, got another title match in there. That's a heck of a week for him. They did Dominic Rollins and they did Ray against Roman as well when they went to Mexico. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, two huge matches for that crowd. Uh, obviously, getting to cheer Rollins against Dom and getting to cheer Ray against Roman, which obviously both make a lot yeah. of sense. So good stuff. Chris, I appreciate you joining for the main event. I know you need to bounce. Folks, we do have the good, the bad, and the ugly coming up right now. So let's get right into it. Then I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some. Shorty. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right. Now, there is a lot of Judgment Day adjacent stuff to discuss here to the point that if Chris had been available for the entire show, this actually would have worked its way into being the true co-main event segment this week. But since it's your boy on his own, we're going to break it all down in order because so much of what happened in earlier segments involving Judgment Day played into things that followed. So we're going to start with SmackDown and then move into Judgment Day on Raw. Dominic Mysterio with his new North American championship was backstage at SmackDown with Rhea Ripley. He said he wanted to show off his title saying, while Ray might become champion of the United States, he's champion of all of North America, the 23 other countries. 
Butch approached. He challenged for the title, given they're in Orlando, the home of NXT. Dom declined, but Shawn Michaels popped in, saying the match sounded like a great idea. This was perhaps the first time that Butch has spoken and acted like an actual human being and not like the Tasmanian devil version of himself. It was also a damn fine segment. Something funny that I noticed and I know others noticed as well is when Sean jumped in the segment and was ready to make the match, he paused and hesitated when saying Butch's name. He almost called him Pete Dunn. It was blatantly obvious and you can even see his lips move if you watch the video. And I'm gonna tweet that out before we publish the show so that you're gonna know what I'm referring to. I actually wish he did screw up because the guy's name should be Pete Dunn or at least Butch Dunn, something he needs a last name. It would have been hysterical if they used Sean screwing up to actually change his name. But I digress. It was good. And I love that Butch is getting all these singles opportunities. It's another example of patience paying off with someone on the main roster. The only kind of negative is he's not winning that much. He did win his way into money in the bank and he has qualified for other things. But there's just other people who are ahead of him right now in the pecking order. So we got the North American title match, Dominic, Butch, Ripley handed Dom a steel chain, but Ridge Holland ran down and stole it from him. Late in the match, Kit Wilson wheeled down Elton Prince in a wheelchair called Prince William. And this was fucking hysterical. Okay, you have pretty deadly selling a separated shoulder with dude needing a wheelchair. Just so funny. Uh, Butch countered a 619 attempt into a rebound German suplex. Deadly yelled at Holland, who chased them and got punched by Wilson. He ran away. That left Prince by himself in the wheelchair. Prince eventually stood up and ran away also. All of that distraction allowed Ripley to take out Butch's knee on the ring apron. Dom then ran him into the post, brought him inside for the one, two, three. This was definitely, you know, overbooked to some degree, but it was far better than Butch losing in a clean fashion. I was confused about the necessity of breaking the brand split. But if it was done to promote NXT since they were in Orlando and tell people, hey, Dominic is the champion. We're in Orlando. Look at all this NXT talent. Make sure you watch on Tuesday. Then for me, it was worthwhile. It was good overall. I'd really like to see more of this normal version of Butch. And given commentary talked about Prince being out months only for him to run full speed off the ramp, I presume the injury is at least being exaggerated in kayfabe. It could be completely made up, but I think it's probably real, but exaggerated. Uh, Judgment Day opened Raw to massive heat, saying they run WWE. Balor put Ripley and Damian Priest over before showing NXT footage of Dom winning the title. Ripley then introduced Dom to even stronger heat. Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn entered to a huge pop, with KO feeling deja vu from last week, saying no one respects Dom or cares what he has to say. Sami then challenged him one-on-one, suggesting he stand up to his title demand from last week and puts the North American Championship up for grabs. Ripley accepted. Eddie Hamilton, one of our listeners, wrote in via Twitter that the crowd made this segment 100% correct. Basically, nothing happened here before the faces came out, yet it was hot as hell because of the crowd. It was a strong continuation of their feud, a really nice setup to the title match, and a good. We got that title match, Dominic, against Sammy late in the show. Priest and Rhea Ripley baited Owens into drawing the referee's attention, so he got tossed. They got ejected from ringside moments later, which is just straight up quality officiating. Notably, Balor was not around during the sequence. Sammy hit a huge topic on Hero early. Dom countered Blue Thunderbomb into a Hurricanrana, but Zayn escaped the ropes for Blue Thunderbomb. 
Dom hit the 619 for a false finish. Sammy got knees up on a frog splash. He came back with an exploder, but Priest and Ripley dumped Owens out of gorilla position, having been attacked with Dom getting the roll up on Sammy, who was surprised to retain the title. Trainers rushed to KO's aid after the bell, and later backstage, he sold that he had a broken rib, which was obviously curious. So clearly I was wrong about Balor not being there. I presume he was absent because of his segment that came later in the main event. There was a lot of heat on Dom after the bell. I never mind distraction or interference finishes. I just wish the actual ending of the match was more creative than a roll-up. There are so many other catch pinning combinations that can be used. When's the last time you saw someone use a small package other than Xavier Woods? How about a seatbelt or a crucifix pen? It's still good for a showcase for Dom against a big-time babyface. He has done well in the wrestling aspect over the last week. I just wish they upped the creativity for the finish once the distraction part is accomplished, not just for him, but across the board in professional wrestling. One more thing, Dominic needs his own unique finishing sequence. He at least needs to stop doing the 619 and use a different setup for the frog splash. He does not execute 619 well. I think... We already have Zelina Vega doing it in addition to Rey Mysterio. And there's really just no reason for him to use it when there's plenty of other ways to get someone flat on their back for the high-risk finish of the Frog Splash. So he needs another setup slash finishing move besides the 619. And I think that would help him in the long run. Now, the only negative for me coming out of this feud on Monday is that it somewhat feels like the tag team champions are spinning their wheels. You have KO and Sammy already successfully defending their titles against Judgment Day last week, yet they're still feuding with them. This despite Dominic now having a singles title. I noted a few weeks ago that there was a planned feud for KO and Sammy for SummerSlam. It was not this. And after Monday, it looks like they're giving them, I would assume, another title match sooner than later with KO selling the rib injury being the differentiator. Now, the argument could be made, well, look, KO and Sammy are such strong baby faces that they are needed as foils for Judgment Day who are super heels. I can buy that. But now we're hearing different things about this rib injury from KO. Some are saying it's real, some kayfabe. If it is real, a fractured rib is a one to two month injury as long as it's not jagged, nothing sticking out. So if they want to change the titles, there would be an excuse in kayfabe and a reason in reality to do it. It just seems like KO and Sammy aren't done with their story as champions and I would really hate for it to end due to injury. I'd almost rather WWE spend time creating number one contenders on both brands and letting KO and Sammy cut promos and do other things. And then they, once KO is healed, they have consecutive matches on the shows. And that's the way they tell the story. If there is a rib injury and it happened last Monday, yet they still strapped up Dom on Tuesday, you can argue they may have wanted to nix the North American title idea and just give Judgment Day the tag team titles instead. A broken rib where KO can still move around largely means it's a pain management issue and they can possibly wait it out. So perhaps that's why they did not do that. But if this match does happen, the faces retain and JD loses twice to the champions, then you're either having the briefcase holder or the North American champion lose in a feud that didn't necessarily need to be continued in the first place, especially now that an injury factors in. So we're going to have to see if a rematch is booked, what happens next week and what happens going forward after that. But I did find this entire thing curious coming out of Monday night. 
Rhea Ripley had a scheduled non-title match against Liv Morgan. Liv backstage explained that Raquel Rodriguez suffered a serious knee injury due to Rhea's attack, but promised that Raquel would be back soon. Morgan said Ripley was all hers tonight, reminding that she was the last person to defeat her and promised there was no way she would back down from Rhea. Ripley then showed up later backstage, proud that she eliminated Rodriguez and promising to do the same with Morgan. So as Liv's making her entrance, Rhea straight up blindsides her, throws her shoulder first into the barricade. Then she snapped her arm over the timekeeper's area with commentary saying it looked like she separated her shoulder. Ripley hit a headbutt inside, wrapped the chair around the arm, stomping it. And it looked like the segment was ending with her yelling to Liv, you're dead to me. I warned you, get out of my business and go have fun in rehab. Holy shit. Trainers tried stopping Ripley, but she instead came back, wrapped the chair around her arm again and stomped it a second time. Morgan is crying and screaming and yelling, unable to move her arm, first in the ring, later backstage. And that's the way this whole thing ended. Holy shit. Off the top, this is supposedly a legitimate shoulder injury for Liv. So they wrote her off with an angle. And boy, did they. What a ridiculously great segment. Ripley went off to a degree that she never really has before on the main roster. At least as far as I'm concerned, this right here on Monday night firmly established Rhea Ripley as the top woman in WWE full stop. That is some of the best character work we have seen this year, and it's the most vicious that Ripley has ever looked. Now, you gotta hope that they capitalize on it. Liv is so beloved by fans. And by the way, she's improved so much, but she's beloved by fans to such a degree that Ripley actually got vociferously booed here. Even when she gets jeers normally, they're short-lived. They're usually more for Dominic or Priest or someone else. Fans wanna cheer her. They booed the ever-loving shit out of her here. This was tremendous. Now, look, I believe Ripley and Becky Lynch is the plan for WrestleMania. It just makes too much sense. But I'll tell you this right now. Ultra babyface Liv returning and winning the Royal Rumble only to get revenge on her former best friend and tag team partner with the type of storyline and video packages they could create for this feud. That is a damn intriguing WrestleMania match. Maybe they'll do it ahead of the Royal Rumble instead and Ripley will beat her, which would be unfortunate. But man, how could you not come out of Monday night not wanting to see Liv upset Rhea at some point soon? Now, look, I would be remiss to end this without giving huge credit to Liv for selling her ass off here. She's among the best in the business at selling to that degree. And this was just incredible in this entire segment with Ripley. As I said earlier, this was a great Raw, yet I actually think this segment, despite everything else that happened on the show, may have been my favorite thing that happened the entire night, despite the unfortunate circumstances. You rub me just right every week. And obviously I thought this was good. Now there are three kind of subtopics off of this. First, the injury. It's curious given that Liv was out in May into June for what she called a torn shoulder. This injury has been called both a dislocated shoulder and a separated shoulder. Those are completely different injuries. Separation refers to the ligament, which can be torn. Dislocation refers to the bone moving out of the socket. If it is a separation, and one assumes it's the same shoulder that Liv said was torn in June, 
You got to think she might have been rushed back for that tag team title transition only to hurt herself worse. That would be a terrible situation and shitty by WWE. Now, I've seen others suggest that this is pure kayfabe and folks inside WWE are doing a really good job hiding it because Liv has to go film that movie she's in. I don't think any movies are filming right now, given the SAG strike. So that doesn't make any sense to me as a reason or an excuse. Lastly, one wonders what the original plans actually were for Ripley at SummerSlam. It seemed like it was Rodriguez. Then it moved to Morgan. Raquel got written off with a knee. And now Liv is written off with a shoulder. I don't believe Raquel's injury is real, but they said it was serious in that opening segment on Monday. So Ripley, from a few weeks ago, went from having zero legitimate contenders for her title to suddenly having two to just as suddenly having zero again. And I have no idea who they are going to build for her now because it sure did seem like Liv and Raquel were set to have a multi-month feud with her, and it would have been a great feud with both of them. You have Zoe Stark with Trish Stratus as a heel. Piper Niven is MIA. We haven't seen her in months. Nikki Cross is jobbing. And other names on the roster, like Candice LeRae, Indy Hartwell, and Tegan Knox, they're ice cold because they haven't been on TV. Now, maybe Shayna Baszler, if she beats Ronda Rousey, she can step up and challenge Ripley because Baszler will be a babyface. But Baszler and Ripley, that's not that attractive of a, of a storyline or exciting of a, of a match. So they really need to figure out what they're hell gonna, they're going to do with Ripley because as we've discussed, yeah, she's defended the title against Zelina Vega and yeah, she's defended the title against Natalia, but neither of those were what we felt as legitimate contenders, people that could actually threaten in kayfabe to take the title off of her. And it seemed like she was about to get two. Both of those apparently are gone. Maybe Raquel comes back, but even if we get Raquel, it's not going to be at a major show. SummerSlam is about to end. This match isn't booked. So you do need to wonder what is going to be happening with Ripley going forward, because while her title reign has been great so far, it hasn't been great in the ring. And the character work is one thing, but you want to see her as that physical threat as well. Now, the third of four Judgment Day members to get featured on Raw was Damian Priest, who fought Apollo Crews. Judgment Day bumped into Cruz and Akira Tozawa backstage. Cruz stood up to Dom and Priest, but Tozawa ran away from Ripley as per usual. It resulted in a face-to-face between the guys, with Tozawa returning after the heels left. Funny stuff from him. Priest won the match with South of Heaven in three minutes. It was nice for Priest to get a dominant win, but killing Cruz, a former Intercontinental Champion, in this spot when they could have used Tozawa or brought in someone from Maximum Male Models or all the talent that isn't on TV, that just doesn't make sense to me. It's better not to do it than to hurt Cruz. A backstage segment, that was fun. The match, that was the main part of this. It was bad. I don't have a choice. I didn't like it. Now, the main event of Raw was a contract signing between Seth Rollins and Balor. It opened with Balor saying Adam Pierce was supposed to be presiding over the signing, but he and Rollins were capable of doing it themselves. The fans tried serenading over him. Credit to Balor, he powered right through it. Rollins came down, immediately signed, threw his legs on the table. Balor hesitated, giving Rollins an opening to talk shit and say, hey man, it's a lose-lose situation for you because even if you win, Priest is gonna cash in money in the bank on you at SummerSlam. You won't get close to the title. Rollins said it won't be the coronation of Judgment Day, it would be the end of Judgment Day. So then Balor smiled and immediately signed the contract. Balor, he talked about Rollins saying he would lose either way, when suddenly Priest entered slowly out of the crowd. 
Ripley sauntered down the ramp. Dom showed up. I don't even know where he came from. They surrounded the ring apron shield style. As Balor said, I've been losing for seven years. It's driving me insane. It's all your fault. And you've been my seven-year itch at SummerSlam. I'm going to make you my seven-year bitch. Now, I saw people saying this was a corny line. I don't know if you've ever heard Finn Balor cut promos before. He's a corny promo. That doesn't mean it was written for him. He probably did this himself. I liked it. I think seven-year bitch playing off seven-year itch is pretty damn funny. So I thought it was fun. Uh, Rollins made the first move. He got flattened with the briefcase. Balor and Priest looked at each other with the briefcase between them briefly. Sami Zayn came down and made the save. He used a chair on the guys, but Ripley stole it with Priest hitting south of heaven. Then Rollins got his ass kicked four on one with Priest hitting Razor's Edge, Dom hitting the Frog Splash, and Balor adding Coup de Gras to end Raw to a chorus of boos. This was an exceptional segment. Top-notch conclusion to Raw. There was a lot of storyline intrigue here. Rollins, so sure he had Balor in the palm of his hand, only for Balor to knowingly smile that he had something up his sleeve. Now, one wonders whether what's up his sleeve and the sly smile that he gave was about what actually happened on Raw or what we discussed last week for SummerSlam. Priest feigning a cash-in in a planned distraction. Balor uses that to beat Rollins 1-2-3 and take the title. The Balor-Priest five-second face-off, that really didn't do much to dissuade me from that idea because it could have been a plant to feed into Rollins' expectations. But that moment with Balor flashing the shit-eating grin and the rest of Judgment Day slowly encroaching the ringside area, that was awesome. Both the contract signing portion and the show-ending attack were extremely well done. It does stand to reason that we get Rollins and Zayn against Balor and Priest next week in the go-home, but again, I just don't know what the plan is for the tag team and the tag team titles. This was an easy good, and just like last month at Money in the Bank, the build for Rollins-Balor is picking up serious steam as the event gets closer. I have no doubt we're going to get a much better match this time around, and while you will hear me point out how it's ridiculous that some other rematches don't have stipulations. This is one case where nothing else is really needed. Now, if you wanted to poke a hole in this, you could note how Rollins was down and out, having taken three full finishers, yet Priest didn't consider cashing in the briefcase. And that's fair, but only to a degree. They explained this recently. Priest and Balor agreed on screen that Finn would get the first crack free and clear before Damien even considers cashing in the briefcase. If he considered it in the moment, that would have played into the legitimate breakup storyline, as opposed to what I believe is gonna be the fake out at SummerSlam. Now, beyond all of this, realize how much time we just spent on Judgment Day and how much Judgment Day has been the focus of Raw over the last few weeks. On Monday, they did a segment together and all of them got individual segments as well. It's just been an incredible job that Triple H has done raising the game, no pun intended, of this group and elevating it into a truly dominant faction. And not just on Monday nights either. This is a judgment day we never could have expected back when Edge was the leader. But the development of it across the last few months in particular, it's been top tier creative work. Excluding the bloodline, this I think is the best faction in WWE, at least since Undisputed Era, and then the best on the main roster, even longer than that. I'm actually struggling to think of the last time I was this excited about a non-bloodline faction. 
Her business, they were always solid, but they never got reactions like this. They didn't get storylines like this. So I give a lot of credit to all four of these wrestlers. Obviously, Triple H gets credit and anyone else involved with the creative for Bloodline, you guys are doing a fantastic job. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. Now, Stephen or Stefan, I'm sorry, I'm not sure which it is, Bonavis at KCN917, he wrote in, uh, could you see a scenario in which Priest cashes in, not on the world champion, but whoever comes out the winner of McIntyre Gunther and Finn beats Rollins in his title match by the time Monday comes around after SummerSlam, all four members are holding singles gold. I wouldn't be surprised if during his time with the briefcase, Priest teases using it on a mid-card title, but I just don't see them having him cash in for anything other than a world championship. Last year, they did that with Austin Theory out of pure necessity. That was with the US title. And there was a story behind it where he failed so many times trying to cash it in on the world title, he felt that was all he could do. That's not Priest's position right now. If they badly wanted all four of Judgment Day strapped up, they would just give Priest and Dom the tag team titles. Now, yeah, you're right. Dom does have the North American title. And I guess they could have Priest cash it in on Gunther and the big title reign right after he retains over McIntyre. That would be pretty disappointing to see Gunther. I mean, it would be a nice excuse for him to lose it, but you want him to break the record first. I don't want Honky Tonk Man keeping that record. I want Gunther to have that record. So it would be pretty disappointing to see that happen at SummerSlam. The record goes away. If they waited a month and Priest cashed it in on Gunther, I would still not like it because the idea of Money in the Bank, you having a chance in kayfabe to claim a world title and you're using it on a mid-card title, to me, that's just ridiculous. But it would be a nice excuse to get the title off Gunther. I still don't think that's what they're going to do. All right, let's move off Judgment Day. Uh, Cody Rhodes came out at 8.40. I only mentioned that since it wasn't the top of an hour like usual. Cody put over Brock Lesnar for his insane success in UFC and making an NFL team. He even called him Mr. SummerSlam, saying most are impressed by him, but his mother, Michelle, was not because she saw all the crazy shit from Dusty Rhodes, Terry Funk, and Gordon Soley. And folks, and folks, I believe I had that. That's exactly what I told Chris on this podcast last week. So Cody... Thank you. Rhodes said Lesnar leaving him breathing was a mistake because now he wants to embarrass him at SummerSlam because that's what Brock deserves. So look, it was a great promo from Cody as per usual. I gotta say though, I'm legitimately shocked there is no stipulation for this rubber match. There are three rematches on SummerSlam and none of them have stipulations. My only assumption is that creative decided the idea of Cody beating Brock clean one, two, three with his finisher without an excuse like a special weapon or a stipulation is stronger booking for him than the alternative. But for me as a viewer, I want something less repetitive. We've already seen two matches with these guys. I want three stages of hell or a bull rope or a cage or just something that's different. Still though, it was good. One other note on Cody, he had the premiere for the American Nightmare documentary on Peacock, I believe last Tuesday. He wore a brace at that premiere selling the Kimura lock from last week, but he was without that brace or anything else on Monday. Charlotte Flair fought Io Sky on SmackDown. This stemmed from the briefcase shot last week. Bailey was on commentary. There were multiple botches early here. Charlotte hit that really rough cartwheel lariat. Bailey distracted with both on the top rope. Io threw Flair into the top turnbuckle, picked her off with a walking Liger bomb. 
Shotzi then appeared on the Titantron, taunting Bailey psycho style. Freaked out, Bailey left. That distracted EO. Three moonsault attempts, two for EO, one for Charlotte. All of them were unsuccessful. Submissions both ways got broken. Charlotte then caught EO off the ropes with a spear for a flat two count. There were a ton of counters in near falls. EO hit a hurricanrana off the top rope with three reverse pinning combinations, only for Flair to catch her with natural selection coming off one of those falls for the win in 15 minutes. Asuka immediately attacked Flair with a German suplex, sliding boot, and arm bar to end the segment. This was a mixed bag for me. It's one of a few things that happened on SmackDown where I would give that description of it. The grade is good. On one hand, I hate WWE's penchant for having the briefcase holders lose matches before they cash in. EO, while she's great in the ring, she doesn't really have a super strong profile as a singles competitor in WWE. She needs wins, not losses. The original booking of her beating Zelina Vega, that's what was supposed to happen on the show, that would likely have helped her if it had gotten legitimate time, though it probably would have been a short match, right? If we're being honest. Now, on the other hand, the agency in this match was done to make EO look as strong as possible going toe-to-toe with Flair before taking, let's call it a happenstance loss. Being defeated by Charlotte, that's not a major negative. It's just losing at all that I didn't like. The match was also rough in parts. It was almost entirely on Charlotte, who just continues to look awful in this recent post-WrestleMania run. No idea what happened to her, but I will say this. If Charlotte doesn't want to wrestle TV matches, don't make her wrestle TV matches. She gets her title shots anyway. She doesn't need wins. You guys do whatever you want with her. It's not that big of a fucking deal. Give the time to women who want to go in the ring on TV. And I don't mean give them two five-minute matches. I mean, if you want to give 15 minutes in the ring, have EO fight Zelina Vega or fight someone else and let it go 15 minutes. Going back to a positive, they did get that 15 minutes to show out and large stretches of the match were nice. So again, it's a mixed bag. As I said, it's a good overall. Bailey and EO were arguing backstage when Bailey noticed her suitcase had been messed with. She found a picture of herself stabbed into it with scissors, presumably by Shotzi. Bit of good news here as well before we move on. Bailey was on TV a lot Friday. She looked like she was walking normally without any visible brace the entire time. So it looks like she's avoided serious injury after that scary non-contact knee injury moment at the house show last weekend. The fact that not only is she walking normally, but they're continuing the Shotzi feud unabated leads me to believe they'll be wrestling soon and she's good to go. So really good news for Bailey. Becky Lynch fought Zoe Stark on Raw. The stipulation here was a match against Trish Stratus at SummerSlam if Becky wins or a tattoo saying thank you Trish on Becky's chest if she loses. Zoe hit her seated springboard sent on to start. Becky hit the flying leg drop. Trish headbutted Bex with the mask at ringside for a false finish. Lynch countered Z360 into a Bexploder, then moved into a superplex, moving that into an armbar. Stark picked her up for a powerbomb. Becky avoided Phoenix Splash. Stark countered Manhandle Slam. Lynch countered back into Disarm Her, but Stratus threw her mask in the ring to distract the referee. Then Becky caught Zoe flying, basically doing nothing. She just flew like a squirrel right into the ring. Uh, Caught her with Manhandle Slam to get the win in 10 minutes. There was a social media video posted later of Stratus and Stark arguing backstage during the show, but nothing major happened. Uh, No notes. Wrestling was on point. Match story was on point. All three women did their jobs perfectly. Zoe looked really good in defeat. Becky got the win back. They got solid time, even if there was a commercial. I wish I had some deep analysis here, but this was a perfect TV booking from start to finish, leading to the match we've all wanted and expected at SummerSlam. 
I'd have liked a quick Becky post-match promo, grabbing the mic, threatening Trish at ringside, you know, would have put an exclamation point on it. But she ended up doing that about two hours later in hour three backstage. So I don't even have a note there. This was good. Drew McIntyre had a face-to-face with Gunther and Imperium. He was dressed and ready to fight on Raw. Gunther talked about raising the prestige of the title to a point where he can't defend it in front of the degenerates in Tampa. Good call by Gunther. He called Drew out for failing at Clash at the Castle and being humiliated at WrestleMania. He accepted the Intercontinental title challenge and promised to humiliate him again at SummerSlam. McIntyre admitted he and Sheamus let their personal issues get in the way of defeating Gunther. He ran down all his nicknames and promised to be the next champion. Ludwig Kaiser then kind of got between them, talked some shit with McIntyre. And Drew kind of came back saying, I actually like you and you should probably lead Imperium because you have more moxie and charisma than Gunther. They kept jawing. That led to a singles match. We had McIntyre against Kaiser. Now, Corey Graves did commentary for a good 60 seconds combined in Kaiser's voice. And it was effing great. Like it was one of those commentary moments that was super random, but you will remember. That's how good of an impression Corey did and how funny it was in the moment. Really top-notch stuff from him there. Kaiser actually got a ton of offense against Drew. McIntyre eventually took control with an air raid crash and Glasgow kiss, only for Kaiser to counter Claymore with a really nice heel kick. McIntyre caught Kaiser with a Claymore off a rebound like a minute later to get the expected win. Giovanni Vinci distracted, allowing Gunther to hit a German suplex. Matt Riddle, in jeans, made the save, only to eat a huge powerbomb by Gunther, with McIntyre getting flattened by a boot outside. The crowd chanted, we want tables during this match for no reason, given it wasn't a street fight or a no-day queue. They chanted it again during the post-match attack, so Gunther flipped off the announce table lid, only for McIntyre to reverse him and powerbomb him through the table to an enormous pop. This was definitely two weeks of build crammed into a single week, but it was great to see them get so much time to enhance the storyline ahead of SummerSlam. Injecting Riddle only for him to get squashed with the powerbomb, that was kind of odd, but I guess the reason was it gave Drew the opening to get up on Gunther. Also, Riddle in jeans, like he looked so strange, but still much, much better than in his Speedo. Anyway, both segments were good. One sneaky fun element was McIntyre putting Kaiser over and making a couple legitimately funny jokes during the segment, Drew is a perfectly solid option to take the title off Gunther. But going into next week, I just don't feel like there's anywhere near enough storyline reason or animosity to make the change at SummerSlam, especially given it's going to be one month shy of Gunther breaking Honky Talk Man's all-time record. Usually when a heel talks about embarrassing a face, that's when you get a title change or at least a, a face victory. It just doesn't make much sense here. Gunther should win. Maybe Gunther winning will be the catalyst for McIntyre turning heel. This obviously has a chance to be match of the night at SummerSlam, and that's despite it being a loaded card. I'm going to be very curious to see what they actually do from a finish and Victor standpoint. Ricochet backstage on Raw was excited. Logan Paul accepted his invitation. He hit the ring at the top of hour three, calling him out. Ricochet talked his shit again, calling Logan an arrogant prick who didn't deserve to be involved in the business when all of his co-workers sacrificed their lives. He laid out the official SummerSlam challenge with Logan somehow appearing out of nowhere and drilling him in the back from behind. Legitimately no idea where he came from. Usually, you know, you'll hear a crowd like percolate and start to react when someone runs in, but it was silent. No one said a word about it. Logan then taped himself on his camera, accepting the challenge and talking mad shit 
only to get caught with a super kick before eating a standing shooting star press from Ricochet. Ricochet then taped himself standing over Logan to end the segment. Logan backstage said he was coming to Raw next week to pop Ricochet's bald head. I was on the verge of giving this a bad. I was for no other reason than it was repetitive and boring up until Ricochet's superkick. There was definitely an intensity that has been built here. And Ricochet did again, a really acceptable job on the mic. Plus Logan was really solid in that backstage segment. So it ended up good. The fact that Ricochet has gotten over Logan two weeks in a row, that just really does seem to lead into the idea that Logan will beat him at SummerSlam. And people are going to really hate on that because Logan should never beat anybody. But, you know, Ricochet right now, he's a mid-carder, upper mid-carder in terms of fan response. He's not really involved in a title picture. He can be rebuilt. Logan took Roman Reigns to the limit. He had good matches with um, other major superstars in WWE. So if Logan does beat Ricochet, I won't have a problem with it, as long as Ricochet looks strong in defeat. Shayna Baszler backstage said neither talking with her nor a match with her would settle the beef with Ronda Rousey. She said the only way to end their feud would be to do it in a language that Rousey would understand, and that's a fight. Graves immediately said, I don't know what Shayna means by that. Me too, Corey. I'm confused. Rousey later said she doesn't want to get involved in a fight. She wants to get involved in the fight and accepted the challenge. What challenge? Like Ronda challenged her to a match last week. Baszler said, I want to fight. And Ronda was like, okay, I accept your challenge. I want to fight. This happened a few months ago. I forgot what feud. Was it Cody and Brock where Cody said he just wanted to fight Brock? And we assumed, oh shit, they're going to put this guy in the fight pit with the former UFC heavyweight champion. And then they just had a match. Why didn't they say fight pit or MMA rules or whatever the case? Like, I have no idea. Maybe that's supposed to be the go home moment for next week. They sign a fight pit match. If so, don't have them speak this week because they accomplished nothing. This was a big womp womp for me in terms like it just lacked specificity. We already know they want to fight each other. A fight is not special. Everyone involved in wrestling gets in fights. So either set a specific stipulation or figure out another way to promote a grudge match. Just say you want to beat the shit out of the person and you want to retire them, take them out of the business, something like that. Cody and Brock have much greater beef and they're just having a match. This was straight up frustrating and therefore I have to give it bad. Now, if they come back next week and they make it a fight pit and this led into that, maybe I'll come back and say, okay, it was acceptable, I get it. But, you know, saying again, I don't want to have a match with you, I want to fight you. And then, Having a match with that person, it does not make a shred of sense. It didn't make sense last time WWE did it. And if they don't go in a fight pit or something else here, it won't make sense in this occasion either. Tommaso Ciampa fought Bronson Reed. Ciampa approached Nakamura, Shinsuke Nakamura backstage, saying he'd let the kick from last week slide because Ciampa accidentally screwed him over, but Nakamura needed to stay backstage or they would have a problem. This was hot from the opening bell. Ciampa hit a rough rider, but couldn't lift Reed for fairytale ending. Bronson sat on his chest for a near fall, then hit a senton. Champa then no-sold the lariat and hit a step-up exposed knee before lifting Reed for an insane air raid crash that sent the crowd into a frenzy and he got a false finish there. Nakamura expectedly walked out with Champa penalized by taking a shoulder tackle for being distracted. Reed then squashed him with Tsunami and got the win. Now, the only distaste I had for this segment was in kayfabe. Most watching this match wanted it to be a big moment for Champa, And it was poised to be. Only for Nakamura, someone, let's face it, we kind of want as a babyface, but he's doing this tweener, maybe heel roll 
to cost Champa the win. And now this is the second time that Champa has lost a match despite being right in the middle of getting over with a huge pop from the crowd. I'd have no issue with this loss in a vacuum if he had beaten Miz in that, whatever it was, the no holds barred match, the street fight, whatever, and already gotten that pop. But now they are literally 0 for 2 with Champa being on the cusp of garnering a massive babyface reaction from the crowd only for a heel to interfere and cost him. Now, whether that engenders sympathy from the fans and that carries over, it remains to be seen. But for me, I see it as two missed opportunities despite the storyline elements of the entire thing. You only get so many chances to get a superstar over. And again, they've now had two of them with Champa and wasted both of them with heels winning. So despite all that, the match was good. I actually think it was the best match on Raw, 3.75 stars and a B plus. The Becky Lynch-Zoe Stark match was really good. The Drew McIntyre, uh, Ludwig Kaiser match was good as well. So there was a lot of really good wrestling on Raw. This one just hit right for me. So I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Sonya Deville and Chelsea Green were upset backstage that Liv got interviewed instead of them. Chelsea started sarcastically complaining that the entire division revolved around Rhea, only for Ripley to show up and Green to completely change her tune immediately, complimenting Ripley for forcing the whole division to revolve around her and saying that she makes the leather look work. Really funny stuff from them as usual. I'd like to see them develop a fresh feud no later than the Raw after SummerSlam. I'm okay with them not doing it this week. I'm okay with them not doing it next week on the Go Home Show. But on the Raw after SummerSlam, at the latest, these women, Chelsea and Sonya, need to be headed in some direction. This was good. And lastly, from TV, Chad Gable backstage was infuriated about losing the Viking rules match last week. He challenged the Viking Raiders, at least I think he did, to an Academy rules match. Maxine Dupree calmed him down. Then she talked trash straight to Valhalla, saying she's dominated her for weeks and Valhalla just got lucky last week. Then she challenged her to a singles match, first ever singles match. Valhalla later accepted that challenge, but the Viking Raiders didn't really say anything about Academy rules. Good stuff all around here. I don't exactly need to see another tag team match between them. I don't even need to see the women fight one-on-one. It feels like everything's 50-50 booking here. And let's say they do have another tag team match and the baby faces win. Then what? Do they have a third? Do they have a second mixed trios match? Maxine Valhalla, it's going to be the first women's match in a long time where I'm totally okay with it lasting just three minutes. And folks, that was the good, the bad, and the ugly from the week in WWE. As I mentioned earlier, we're not going to have a last word on today's show. Um, We're going to hit it next week, of course, on the WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview, but we love banking your questions and having a bunch to choose from. We have run through those over the last couple of weeks, so feel free. You can tweet us or DM us at GettingOvercast on Twitter with your last word question. You can email us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. Either of those, you can send in your questions both for the last word and also questions and comments that you may want us to read on the show. As you know, and as you heard already today, I did that a few times. So again, at Getting Overcast on Twitter, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. On the way out, let me quickly go through the updated WWE SummerSlam card. These are the matches that are official and then a couple others that are kind of lingering out there where we don't know whether they're gonna be booked or not. Undisputed WWE Universal Championship, Roman Reigns, against Jey Uso in a tribal combat match. World Heavyweight Championship, Seth Rollins versus Finn Balor 
part two, obviously, they just fought at Money in the Bank. The WWE Women's Championship, Asuka, Charlotte Flair, and Bianca Belair in a triple threat. Cody Rhodes versus Brock Lesnar, the rubber match, part three. No stipulation as of right now. This is the one match that's a rematch where there absolutely should be a stipulation, and I still do not understand why there isn't. Again, two possible reasons. One is they want Cody to go over Brock squeaky clean in a singles match, and they think that's going to make him look stronger. The other possible reason, this might be later in the show, and they don't want to have some type of hardcore match here, and then do another one with Reigns and Jay in tribal combat. So they said, hey, only one for the show. And that is something that separates WWE from AEW. Um, you know, they AEW at Double or Nothing, which was their last single branded show, they put three hardcore style matches on that card. WWE, it seems they'll have one or zero. They don't really get into these stipulations with the exception of Extreme Rules, which I don't even know if they're going to be doing this year. So that is a differentiator I wanted to point out. Anyway, back to the rest of the card. Becky Lynch, Trish Stratus 2, the Intercontinental Championship, Gunther against Drew McIntyre, and Ronda Rousey versus Shayna Baszler. We'll see if there's some type of stipulation here. Maybe there won't be. And lastly, Ricochet against Logan Paul in the featured kind of celebrity match. So that's eight matches right now for SummerSlam, and that's about what WWE, the maximum of what WWE has been giving us for big show cards right now. So what's missing? Well, the Women's World Championship, Rhea Ripley, we thought it might be Liv Morgan. It might be Raquel Rodriguez. They might not do anything at all. Ripley not being on this card does not make a shred of sense. I know there's three other women's matches, I get it, but Rhea Ripley, again, is one of your, if not your single biggest women's star right now, and her not being on this card, it's weird. Tag Team Championships, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, they're not on the card. Is it because of injury? Is it because they changed the plans from what was originally scheduled and now they're not on it? Will they have a match with Judgment Day? Possibly. You know, that would be nine and 10, those two matches. Rhea Ripley, uh, the Women's World Championship, the Tag Team Championships, that would be nine and 10. And obviously there's nothing with LA Knight either, which there's no title reason for that, but just from a popularity standpoint. So again, you're looking at the SummerSlam card and you may not have Rhea Ripley, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, or LA Knight, which are four of your most over superstars in the entire company. As of right now, none of them are on this show, at least when it comes to having booked matches. That's going to be something for us to discuss on the Ultimate Preview next week. Speaking of next week and speaking of this week, let me go ahead and give you the entire schedule for the Getting Over Wrestling podcast coming up because folks, it is stacked, okay? We will be back 24 hours from the publication of this podcast on Wednesday with our NXT Great American Bash Ultimate Preview. We will also have an interview with a very special NXT superstar on that show. Thursday morning, first thing Thursday morning, we will have a special interview episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, welcoming in none other than Montez Ford and Angelo Dawkins, The Street Profits. Then later Thursday, we will have your normal weekly AEW episode breaking down Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. And then Sunday, as soon as it goes off the air, your NXT Great American Bash instant reaction. Of course, one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel, your WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview next Tuesday. So in a eight-day span, you will get six podcasts from your boys here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. You may say, Silver King, that is very generous of you. How can we thank you 
for providing us with that much performance enhancing audio. I'll tell you how you can remember that this podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave the five-star rating on Spotify as well. And if you're going to take the time, and I appreciate you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you click the five stars so I can read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and so much more throughout the week. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I really hope you all do as well. For five bucks a month, you can become an official Getting Overhead. You get bonus audio after the major shows, Raw, SmackDown, Dynamite, and NXT are the ones that we do most frequently. Also, you get news posts every single week, at least on Friday. I'm going to try to do more in the future. All buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Five bucks a month or $50 for the entire year. Beyond the bonuses you get, it supports Silver King and Vintage right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to this show. It is officially time for the Silver King to sign off. We got plenty more performance-enhancing audio for you still to come this week. At this point, it is time to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.